Hi, I'm Dan Higginson, and welcome to the 30th episode of the Idle Hand Society podcast, where we hope to discuss and learn more about effective creative process. He's kind of a big deal. I'm joined today by Paul Bentz. On da. <laughs> and we're also joined by visual artist Jaime Gilly. Do, do, do. <laughs> hey, man, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to see you in twice in two days, mate. Yes, it was very nice, that impromptu visit yesterday. It, it was almost like Christmas. People almost, will talk about yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just talking about, um, just before we started recording, we were just talking about your artwork. Now, I've been diving into this a little bit over the last few days since Paul said that we've got you lined up for this episode. And I really like it. And I'm struggling for the language to be able to describe exactly why I like it. To me, it looks almost architectural, right? There's a lot of relentlessly straight lines. They seem to work like with whatever you, you've, you've put the artwork on. I'm assuming you must spend a long time considering, I was going to say whatever canvas you're putting on, but it's not always a canvas, right? Sometimes it's a car or a building. Mm -hmm. How involved do you get? I'm assuming it starts with the material, right? I love doing things in the in architectural spaces, in given spaces, and in spaces that have problems, that are not just a white cube. Nonetheless, most of the time, the gallery is a white cube, and uh, the canvas is a, is a rectangle. So I have something that doesn't have any, any kind of exciting things to, to correct or, or to work with. But when, when that's the case, like, for example, with a canvas, I already start, when priming, I, I already provoke accidents in a way. I, I make things happen that are not, uh, that are already going somewhere, random. And then from, from there, I do respond to what's happening. With the cars, it's the same thing. I, I, I find it difficult to say no to an idea, to a commission, to a client saying something. There's always something interesting to work with in funny spaces, in, in ugly cars. I haven't done any ugly cars. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's this thing of correction, of, of trying to fix something or to making people look at one place and not another in a car, in a space, in a painting. I've noticed that even your gallery shows, you seem to be trying to find where you fit in. And it's the same with the cars, right? You're working with whatever you're putting your, your art on. You seem to be working with the medium. For the next show, for instance, that I'm having at, uh, in Bermondsey, in uh, Cecilia Bronson Gallery in February, she has just spent so much money making a really nice white cube rectangle space. And I have, I've known this space for, for many years, so I've seen it change. And then she was really surprised when my proposal for the show is not using any of the brand new walls, but I'm going to put four paintings in the middle of the space, like a cube. <laughs> so, so I'm always I've automatically drawn to, to like bringing in a painting that's bigger than the walls or, or not using the walls, uh, using the floor instead, for instance. So, yeah, there's a kind of rebel act. <laughs> towards the space yeah i i see that i see that and i kind of appreciate it you, you mentioned a minute ago about creating accidents uh, what do you mean by that there's a process of uh destroying <coughs> fixing destroying fixing and in the end maybe the painting is is a, is a fixed is ended on the on the fixed side of things if it ends up in the destroyed side of things, it'll probably be one of those paintings that I call is an art collection that I keep because there's something there happening that uh, that still needs to be sorted or understood by me. And I was telling Paul yesterday that in, in paintings, uh, at least with me in my practice, it happens that if if a painting is is a head in time, it's a very slow process. You know, every painting is based in in something I discovered in the previous one, but if something I feel that is ahead of me, like two or three years ahead. I will keep that painting and I will look at it repeatedly and I will try to understand. But in the end, in the long run, in 10 years, I will have to have made the paintings in between that. You know, there's no gap, mm. never. It's a super linear, slow process. And all the painters, that's why we end up dying old painting with the brush in hand because there's still a lot of work to do, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's relentless. Yeah. It, it, yeah. When we talked yesterday and, and I, Jaime showed me, so from when he first started all the way through to 
where he is now. And those, it's, it's tiny incremental changes, right? You, you would, if you looked at it, it's an amazing thing to see. It's like a timeline of how his work has evolved over a course of how many years would that be, Jaime? It was 22, from, from 2000 probably, yeah. So it's, 23 it's, it's, years it's, of painting. It, it, it was, it, it's, it's difficult to describe, but it, it makes so much sense when you see it. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, and refining and refining and, 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 and constantly refining until you're, you'll get into something that, I don't know, has some emotional truth maybe to mm -hmm. you, do you think? In the process of each painting, yes. In the process of a lifetime of painting, maybe it won't be. Maybe you never do it. What do you think? Or you just need doing. Do you think the process is more important than the finished product? For my life, yes. Because as soon as the painting is finished, you want it out of the way and you want to start a new one. For my life, it's mostly a process. But... In reality, for the, how the rest of the people see you, they, they want the finished product and they want to see the, the show. You know? And I want the shows to look like my studio. It's a, it's a, it's a battle between the finish and the, and the process. No, I always show the process in the paintings. You can always see the, the lines. You can, I, I leave the marks of the pencil and chalk. You know, it's, yeah, it's always there. Why do you think you choose to do that? As a reverence to the process and to show people that, that, that things take work. And, and despite being a very graphic uh, work, an yeah, architecture, yeah, I, I show how it's made. I, I, maybe in an architectural space, I don't like seeing that the, the builders left the, the marks there, that the concrete still kind of... <laughs> it there is something beautiful. It makes it kind of yeah. more human almost, right? Yeah. I, I find it really yeah, Especially with the graphic work, yeah. I find it really interesting that when you asked Dan what he thought your work was, and he said, oh, it's quite architectural. And then you told me yesterday about your history, about your brother being an architect. Mm. I, found, I found that quite like, it, it, it's, where is this, is there a, was, was your, what, what, I was, I was going to say start again, but what, tell a little bit about your history about what your, your father did and how you, you got into it. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, my, my father was always around the car industry. He made uh, car wheels, but he was. In the, he started drawing, and then he ended up supervising the whole factory. But but also still, he always wanted to draw. And in my in my bedroom in in Caracas, there was always the the big drawing board of my dad because on the weekends he wouldn't stop working and he would be drawing there. I remember the sound of the technograph, like the, the rulers that go with the strings. So he always was about straight lines and perfectly finished curves. Very technical. And uh, I remember since very little that when he told me that if there was a straight line in a, in a wall, in a mural or, or in a car even, he would tell me to look at it like in a slanted way like this. So I would see if there was any mistake in the straight line. He would always look at the economy in the materials, like in the car, if there was some waste of material, he would always talk to me about it. And my mom, which I didn't tell you about, my mom, she, she, she has always had a workshop in every house where I lived where she makes clothes. She's, she's a seamstress. And she has always been, since she was 15 or, or less, until now that she's 80. And always there's, you know, pieces of cloth, colors uh, all over the floor and cut with straight scissors. There was always a fight in my house between the scissors that are for cutting paper and the ones that are for cutting fabric because you cannot switch them because <laughs> they get damaged. So there was the scissors that belong to my dad and the scissors that belong to my mom. And imagine the kids in the middle, like, I want some. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that when I was looking through your um, your portfolio, there, there was, in fact, there's quite a lot of, um, there's a bunch of architectural stuff, but there was also, what are they called, the big the big gas cylinders? Like, I was just looking at that, and I've a good friend of mine is a Carl Cooper, big shout out to Carl. Um, he's a tattoo artist and he was always telling me about how difficult it is to make something look right because people are round, right? Your arms around, your legs around, your torso's round. It's, it's not a perfectly flat surface. And he said to get something that is straight, to look straight, 
he said often it isn't actually technically straight, you know? Yeah. And I, I couldn't help but think about that when I was looking at your work. How how difficult is it to I mean, you were just talking about your father looking down things from yeah. a certain angle. I'm assuming a lot of that comes into play when you're working on something like a car that's very unpredictable yeah. in its shape. It, it always responds a lot to the shape of the car, for instance, if it's a car. And we use loads of different tools. The cars that have curves in them and have to have a, like a 3D mm. curve, if you understand, if I, if I make sense. Um, we use uh, very thin... Uh, wire that keeps the shape of the curve and then we draw and then the the main part of the process is when you put the tape because if the curve is very complex it has to look right but the tape is always a different color so you can see if the curve is right you have to redraw many times but the process starts a lot earlier when i'm drawing and when i'm drawing is always flat i see the car from five different sides or i see the the oil tanks were made Flat. I, I just like dismantled the cylinder and just made a long shape. Mm. And then the painters have to make sure that the, the straight lines look straight. It's not, I mean, it, it's, it's a matter it's, of it's, practice. It's like a, there's it's a technical yeah. thing behind it. But it, that's it, it, really interesting. a lot of enjoyment, but, but yeah, it is. It, it's, not it's like the problem solving. I can tell you're a man that likes a challenge. Like a, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing I, at the beginning you were saying that you, you can't say no. Yeah, yeah. And I always, uh, when, when we talk about that, I remember uh, Carlos Cruz Diez is a Venezuelan artist who died a couple of years ago at the age of 92, I think he was. He worked all his life. He's, a, he's one of the main optical art um, artists. He, he lived in Paris most of his life. He, there's a picture of him when, when Venezuela was booming in the 70s and beginning of the 80s, until 1984 exactly, he had lots of commissions. It, it, to the point that, that, that there was a, an excess of uh, optical art and, and public art that was, was for those artists, for Soto, Cruz Diez, and, and a few more. But he, he was told once to do the... Um, there's a river that crosses Caracas. Caracas is a beautiful city, but this river is actually the sewers of the city. It's never been cleaned. There's never been any any project to actually make it at least uh, nice to walk by it because it right, always right. smells horribly. But he was told once to make uh, one of the barriers to 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 prevent the, the mountain to fall into it had kind of a metallic uh, structure that looked a little bit like his work. So he was asked to actually paint it, and. Uh, you would know that the river would be dirty. You would know that the rest of the mountain would keep growing and they wouldn't keep it. Even the paint would fall. But he said yes. You know, he was already a big famous artist living in Paris. He said yes. And there's a picture of him so happy <laughs> doing this thing when he was young. He was, yeah. And the work nowadays is still like an old graffiti on top, plants that grow in between the cracks. There's still some, some color that's been left there for... 30 years or 40, but and it's just you know, it's, it's there. Wearing it's, into the it's one of my favorite ones because it, it represents the spirit of, of this, uh, the artists that, that work in, in countries like mine. We have to do what we can do to, to make things better. So, uh, obviously, to, to fix the city, you would have to start with the, the source, but that's not the artist's job. So, did you have a lot of formal training? Yeah, a lot, a lot, too much. Too much. <laughs> I had, for all of the nineties, I was in a in an academic institution. I have MA, I have PhD, whatever you ask, I have. It's a full poker. You're a Partly because you know, for living in places, sometimes you need to scholarships or grants, or to stay in this country was better to be in a, a studying. Um, when I arrived to to Spain, I also was straight away studying, but I had already studied in in Caracas, so I've done yeah ten, ten or eleven years of academic. Yeah, nice PhD, big book. Yeah, I know that's cool. Five hundred page book and, and about. Yeah. Uh, look at the subject; you'll be amazed. 
artists who always make the same thing. That was the subject, repetition. An artist no who would sit down in the studio every day and make the same thing he did yesterday, or try to make it, because that's the main, that was the main subject, really, that, that you cannot actually repeat what happened last week. <laughs> that's amazing, though. I bet it was really interesting, was it, Jaime? Yes, yes, because I ended up talking about people like Warhol, making repetition just to make money. Or people like like uh, the opposite would be Agnes Martin, who makes always the same kind of grid. But because for her, the universe is one thing and one only thing, and that's all she can do. And it's representing that uniqueness. So completely opposite uh, what they wanted to do, but they, they, what they do really is the same thing every day. From what I've seen of your work, there's there's definitely this heavy theme that carries through it in a similar way to that. Is that something that's always kind of inspired you? People that stick at something until it's trying to perfect something rather than like, go, okay, that's done, moving on to the next thing. I don't know. I don't know why I, I spend so much time with that subject and I still see books sometimes that are about that and I am interested. But in my studio, I want to bring something new every time. And I admire another Venezuelan artist I'm going to mention now, Alejandro Otero, because he, he, he would work five years in one very specific type of work. And then he would change completely. Like the new one would be like working with a completely different material, different size, different scale. Like he started making oil paintings that look like, like a bit like a post Picasso kind of thing in the 30s. And he ended up making big sculptures that had to do with the wind and the light and very technical and along the years of these 40 years it changed five or six times so i'm really i'm an admirer of people like that as well i, I was I, listening uh, sorry i was yeah. listening to a photographer say that um i can't i can't remember the names of the photographers but he was basically saying as soon as he gets bored with a subject he jumps to a completely different topic and and he said he because it was basically a famous photographer he came across when he was like 70 years old and he was grey and haggard and he was miserable. And he said, I don't want to be like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And know, it's like travelling. You know it will be nice. You might feel a bit scared before doing it, but, you know, travelling on your own to a different country. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really Fantastic. nice. It changes completely your your uh, the way you, you think about things. But, but before doing it, the big step is to actually go, do it, start. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying earlier also about your um, your father sort of perfecting the curves on on his technograph. Is that something you've ever pulled into your work? I mean, like I say, I've only really spent a few days like really diving deep into your work, so maybe I've only skimmed the surface. But I'm not really seeing any like any curves. <laughs> Everything seems to be straight lines. Oh, so yes, there is there is one project where where I based the exhibition around the park in Caracas that was going through a bit of trouble because uh, one government had put something inside it when it should be uh, a listed, it should be a totally protected place. And then the the next president actually decided that he was going to change that already foreign object that was inside the park for something else very similar to the previous thing but they either of them respected what the park was the park was uh, it's called parque del este and was by uh, the architect was a brazilian architect called roberto burle marx and it's full of curves because it's a, it's a you know lots of green and it's a garden giant garden and um i at the time also my wife was pregnant i don't know if that has to do with it but but there was a whole series a whole exhibition with lots of curves and very sensual. Um, that's called the lakes because there's nine lakes in the in the park, and there were nine paintings initially. Then, then there were a lot more. But yeah, I, I have I have done, and in the end, it becomes a similar thing the way I I, I work. But they look so different. People really consider it a completely different thing. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> is there is there anyone that like really really influenced you when you were growing up i don't necessarily mean in that kind of really obvious oh i saw this particular artist and that that's the style i kind of now painting but like 
I don't know, maybe it was a particular teacher or someone that, that kind of really lit that spark for you? I've been going to, to classes for painting since I'm 10 or 11 in Caracas, but they, they were not um, so crucial. I, I've always been an artist and I, I, I always been allowed at home to, to, to do it. I, I think my father, at heart, he was a frustrated artist. So all the library he had collected and all the tools that he that I still use when he's not there, uh, they they were for me. Uh, and then imagine ten years in institutions. There's a lot of tutors I've seen. I I think the most important would be the the visits to museums in Caracas in the early. 80s when I was that age, like 10 or 11 or 12. And the artists that I mentioned before, Soto, Cruz Diez, and especially Alejandro Otero. Because, uh, I mean, many Venezuelan artists would tell you that those three names, but especially Otero, um, I think it's, it, the way in the city art is embedded in the architecture as well is very important. The Central University in Caracas is, is crucial to my, my work. And that was a project, one of the main projects in the world, where the architect called the artist before the plans were made. So it's not that he made a, a, a building and then he left a space for the artist to come in. He met with the artist before the, the building was planned. Oh, really? Yeah. Have so some of these walls are really embedded, you know, in a really important way. That's, that's like really, so that's such a weird way of approaching it, isn't it? Like if you think about it, if... I mean, you said your brother was an architect. I wonder if he's going out to artists. At, at, like that just seems really. Um, I can't even think of the word. Like forward thinking. Yeah, it was very brave, and it all came from from. It all comes from Corbusier, but Corbusier did the art himself. Uh, Villanueva, who's the architect of this university, he, he didn't do the art himself. But he, he had the power. He, he came from a diplomatic a family of diplomats, and. Even though there was a dictatorship at the time in, in Venezuela, he had the diplomat mind where he would, you know, no, we need to do this. This is not for now. This is not, you know, the country is not ready for this, but we're going to make it anyway. And we're going to call Alexander Calder and we're going to call Jean Arp. We're going to call Basarelli. And then he called also the national artists. There's like 40 artists that, that worked in that process. And uh, for instance, Alexander Calder made in the main hall, he made some acoustic pieces that he called clouds. Yeah, so and they're like functional, super, right? They're functional, yeah. exactly. That's what, what, and he said he was his main, his most important work. He was really happy with that piece. Yeah. I mean, An artist is really. Blessed when when you can do something that is useful that will last and and is beautiful as well. I'm interested. I'm interested to know. Hypothetical question here: If if you hadn't gone to university, done your degrees, done your PhDs, do you, do you think the the knowledge you gained during those years from doing all of that education, do you think you'd be the same artist as you are now? Do you think you would like? Do you think that education has informed your work in any way, or do you think actually you would still be doing what you're doing? I know, I know exactly what years I wasted and what years were useful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or I wasted, or I, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, luckily, the master in in the Royal College of Art here is two years because I arrived thinking that I would learn things about my process, and I, it's about you know connections and the show. You know, the first day. All the British people are already thinking of the show, the final show after two years. And I was there, okay, let's see what I'm meeting, what I'm going to learn. First year was like that. Luckily, it was two years. So I could, okay, the show, the show. <laughs> what am I showing? <laughs> and uh, in, in Barcelona, the previous years, uh, it was completely about the process. Completely different mindset. Like, you make and you make and you make. And then they come from time to time. There's a tutor coming in and he wants to see what you did uh, and how you do it. There was no show. There's no show. You study five years and there's no exhibition. So it's not about wow. that. It's wow. Just about 
making and making just a lot of blah 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 as well. Lots of exploration. So right. it was important to balance both because I, I lacked a bit of the process in the master and I lacked a bit of the show in the in the first one, but in the end it made a balance in me. Do you think that would have been a lot more beneficial maybe if you'd done them the other way around? No, you can't. No, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean though? Like it, if you just spent however many years just on the process and then you did the one with the show at the end. No, no, that's what I did, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. That's what I did. That was, uh, the Barcelona was previous. No, that ah, was perfect. Okay, okay. okay, it, okay, couldn't, okay. it couldn't possibly be the other way around. And you see that happening a lot in when, both in, in, in countries like Barcelona, like Spain, where younger artists think that they have to be making the super show at 22. Mm. And here where people do shows at the BA and they, they you know, it's, it's, Sometimes it's too pretentious. They just they just getting themselves in, in clothes that are too big for them. Yeah, uh, it is dangerous. It is dangerous to have the show too early. And I think I think I think that comes across as well in in what we talked about. Then, like you know, going too early with your with your work, like you know, you you need to yeah. you need to experience and develop and like you don't so, know anything, right? At twenty two, my God, you can be I, a bit premature with these things, right? Absolutely, like it takes time, I think, um, and and but you have to find yourself as well. I don't know that you can find yourself that quickly. Like nobody really. Again, we spoke about creative geniuses in, uh, in the last episode, but uh, I'm I'm sure there are people that already have a voice and they're very very young. But those people are very few and far between. Most people need to find themselves, right? Yeah, but you need to finish works as well. You, you could yeah, yeah. argue that the, the exhibition for some people is a whole thing with a whole series of works. But the same process has to come true when making one single work. You want to finish it, you want it to make sense, you want to show it. People see it and they react. It can be a small thing, but it's a conclusion. What I lacked in, in Barcelona was the fact of putting... My conclusions on the wall and, and just getting people to see them because everything was about process and an unfinished thing. And what was too much here was everything had to be a conclusion and, and there was no chance of having things unfinished left around the studio. So we it's work good to have the balance. pieces at once, right, Amy? Lots of pieces at once, yeah. And I, I was telling this to Paul yesterday that I, I, I might be at home and half the morning has gone. And I'm like, yeah, I could just do things here on the computer. I could just do this thing that I need to finish. And I don't remember that in the studio there's lots of things in progress. And I might go to the studio, like, not reluctantly, but okay, let's... I know there will be things to do, but when I arrive there, I see, okay, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's lots of things in process. And there's always work to do, and that's amazing. I, I, I have a really nice studio now, and I, I have a really good time there, but sometimes, you know, in the morning, <laughs> when, you, have, yeah, yeah, when yeah. you haven't slept much, it's really hard to get out of home. But, Hi, yeah, Mia, I've got, got a quick question for you. So <laughs> how, how have people reacted to your work over the years? Like, I mean, I know that's a difficult question asking you, but... Yeah, I've been in, in London. London for 20-something years, 25 years maybe. 25 already. 25, wow. Yeah. And it's, it is a country where I, I will never be British. I will always keep this uh, exotic thing and this foreign thing, be it for a good reason, for a bad reason, but people never will never see me. As a, you know, it starts with my accent and everything. I look whatever. But other countries, like some friend was telling me, if you've been to Italy... After a month, you'll be Italian already. <laughs> like, that's, that's so true. You know. That's so true. Yeah. So it's it, it's been nice to be here and not and always retain some kind of exotic thing. But sometimes you think like after so many years, so hard uh, that, that always the world has to be seen with the with a different lens. But I, I say this because I'm going to say something else, and is that. Uh, it's always been really good for me to go and have a show in uh, in Venezuela or in Haiti or in Dominican Republic, do something there, and then come back here and have a show here. It's been like a double step ladder, if you know what I mean. I, I, I travel, I do something, and then I show the pictures here, and then I'm invited to do something here. It was really good. It was working really well 10, 
five years ago when I could go to Venezuela more often. Still, I'm going to go next year. I'm going to do something. I'm going to work again. Like uh, always things that are done there, they're done cheaper, they're done faster, they're, done, they're more fresh. And when I make things here, they're cooler, they're, you know, uh, white cube kind of spaces, more calculated with more budget. And they like to see that over there, all the Venezuelan collectors they have, they love to see that nicely finished and well thought thing. And here they like to see things done on a shoestring and, you know, falling apart. <laughs> It's always the exotic, right? There's like a draw. Yeah, to... there's still a bit of that. And, and in every European country, they have a different way of, of seeing South America. But here there's less knowledge. And for the same reason, I can make up lots of stories that are, you know, yeah. It's, I'm more free to, to, to be what I am. I don't know. In Spain, there's a lot more prejudice. And in, in France, it's, it's horrible. The... The, the box where they put South American artists here is a bit more because of the lack of knowledge, I'm a bit freer. Yeah, exoticism brings free. You miss, do you miss home? <laughs> if you could go back and, I mean, I know we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but if, yeah. you, could, if you could go back and live home happily, you know, let's, in a, if things were, would you go? Yes, yes. If I think of my son, then I, I want my son to be open-minded enough so he will feel nowhere is his home and he will feel happy everywhere he goes. If I think about me, uh, I don't know, it depends on the, the moment in life where you are, but it will be perfectly possible that we, if there's a regime change in government, I would spend a lot more time in, in Venezuela in Margarita Island, for instance, where we started building a house. In Caracas, it's a beautiful city with a great weather and lots of things happening. Um, so, yes. But when you say home, when you said home so many times yesterday, I already <laughs> don't know where home is. I was <laughs> going to say that. Because like, yeah. just as Paul was asking, I, yeah, yeah. it immediately struck me that, you know, you said you've been in London for 25 years and it, yeah, it just yeah. stands to reason to me that that would be home. Right. Yeah. yeah. London yeah, is yeah. Home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you have that sense? Like, does anywhere feel like home? Does it, or does everywhere feel like home? I would say everywhere, really. Yeah. Just like my friend who said, if I was in Italy, that would be home. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you're in yeah. Italy for a month, and you're an Italian now. You're 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 home. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And and that's what I want for my son as well. Like he would feel happy, and he would feel. Quit but do you, don't you have like a, a longing, a longing for, for like I, when I, so I grew up in South Wales and lived by the sea and I, I, I it's, it's a, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's one of those places where you just go and the moment you're, you're there, it, it, it makes you feel. Yeah, like, yeah. That, that, it's in your bones, right? Yeah. Yes. But also there's, there you have to remember that I, I left Venezuela voluntarily. Yeah. And we slowly, slowly the dictatorship that we had for 20 years already, we have become exiles. Like I was until... Now there's starting to be changes where I feel brave enough to go next year. But we were scared. I mean, it's not... Mm -hmm. it's political persecution to, to just plain insecurity. It's, it's a completely different... It world to, to what it was when I left. So it's a tricky question because we would love to go, but we would love to. We would still working a lot to to have a change in, in the to have proper democracy and to have proper elections. You think that will happen in your lifetime? Uh, yes, I think so because because now there's the international community is actually working towards a change with. Uh, Justice with international justice and um, Hague, the the what's the name the, in English? The International um, oh, Court of Justice that they're bringing many of the regime heads to 
to an investigation for the time being. It started three or four years ago, so it's going very slowly, but, but they are already wanted. So it's, it's, the world is realizing that it's a criminal gang that, is, that has a country hostage. It's not even a bad government. It's just a criminals. So yes, I think so. It has to happen because otherwise there's no dictatorship that lasts for so long. It cannot last 40 years. It has to. Right. They kind of have to eventually burn yeah. themselves out, right? Yeah. I feel like it's a lot of torture to put a country through and then sustain it. It it, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like a sustainable way of of running it anywhere. Like I, I know that I'm speaking from a very privileged position, right? We live in the UK and it's always been... It's always been fairly stable here, at least in yeah. our lifetimes, going back hundreds of years. Whenever I see something like what's happening in Venezuela or what happened in Venezuela, I just, I just look at that and I think there's so many people that at some point the, the weight of all those people will just kind of crush that dictatorship. Yeah, but they know how to make six million people go away oh absolutely right and they know how to get the ones that stay dependent on a box of food yeah and even though they destroyed the oil industry to the to 20 years ago we were producing three million barrels and nowadays it's less than half a million even though they destroyed that because mm-hmm. of their ineptitude they 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 laid off twenty thousand people one in one day 18 years ago even though they destroy that, they're now destroying, they're, they're doing mining, just the most basic of, of, of the things you can do, extractive mining in the Amazon. There's diamonds, there's gold, there's coltan, and they're exporting it directly to, through, through the, what we call the Caminito Verdes, because of all the sanctions, they couldn't do it properly legally but they you know they find ways they find it's ways crazy. and they are all destroying <laughs> it i find it crazy like you said that was 18 years ago and you say 18 years and it sounds like a long time but yeah. that's not that long ago that's yeah. it, uh, we're in the 2000s at that point 18 years ago that's yeah. that's in living memory uh, probably everybody listening to this right now like that's this isn't ancient history this isn't something that happened in the 40s or something this is this yeah. is recent right Yes. It's 20,000 people being laid off in one day. Yeah, and when they arrived, they said uh, we would stay until 2021. And we thought, ah, come on. Because yeah. they, they changed, you know, this, the first thing they did, because the first election was won legally. I wouldn't say that. But he had given a coup years before. So right. he was already, they should have been jailed. Anyway, the first election was won. And the first thing he did was to change the constitution so he could be reelected indefinitely. And the terms would be seven years long. So that's what they said, okay, 2021. And now it's 2021, <laughs> nearly 2022, and they're still there. So very sad, very sad. It is very sad. I think that's what happened in Russia as well, right? They, they had something very similar. Yeah, and just in Nicaragua last week, uh, Ortega had jailed in the previous three months. He jailed seven of his opponents that would be candidates. So he was running by himself, the elections. So there was like 85% abstention, only 15% of people voted, and he won. Yeah, uh, he won. <laughs> Obviously, the, the really just seems <laughs> insane to me. Like, <laughs> can you? And there's still some people who, who defend that because they say, "No, the US does this and does that." Come yeah. On. Do you think, as an artist, there's there's a way of highlighting these issues? Like, do you, do you think art has a place in? Um, yeah. Right. We do talk about it all the time, me and my wife. Every show we do has thing, has something. The show I'm going to do in February has maybe 50% of the subject is something that happened in Venezuela in 1968. That is, to me, it's very important because in 1968, obviously, everyone was, was in favor of Castro doing whatever he was doing in Cuba. And now, you know, now you realize what, what he did was a 60-year-old regime, totalitarian regime. Anyway, yes, we always talk about it. Having said that, the public here is mostly aware. They mostly know. There's not, not so much a work of, of, of spreading the, the ideas. That, but whenever we find a platform like, like yours, we, yeah, we talk about it. And we, yeah, we, are, <laughs> we, are, we put ourselves forward to discuss. Fighting the good fight. Yeah. Um, 
because there's still a lot of people that defend dictatorships like ours in places that are really far away and where they've never been, just because they have this uh, from the mouth out, they have an anti-imperialistic right, right. discourse. But they, you know, they are doing this from from a country like like the UK or France, and it's, it's really sad. It's almost like the um, like the propaganda gets gets eaten up in other countries really quickly. It's, it's really easy to believe the first thing you hear, and that probably will be yeah. the first thing you hear. Yeah, it's it's tricky these these days because there's a lot of uh, obviously the Russians are they are backing a dialogue, but that's also a strategy for for delaying things. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, 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 don't worry, this government is actually talking to the opposition. They're, they're planning to have elections, and Russia is always there with the talks. The Chinese are not there anymore because they owe a lot of money. Venezuela owes a lot of money to China, but there's. You can count them. Like there's Iran, there's Turkey, there's Russia, and there's Cuba. These countries are, are running Venezuela now. It's it, it, it is a yeah. It is a. It, it's not like like in the Cold War where there were lots of countries on one side and and lots of countries on the other. Now it is it's, it's just very few. But they, they they are making lots of noise because of of the, the way information flows nowadays. Well, what what job do you think um, democratic societies should have in like highlighting these? You know how how like uh, Iraq obviously went terribly wrong because we thought yeah. Saddam had weapons of mass description and it turned out he didn't know anything. But that's think, what we were told, right? It's, yeah, like, like yeah. we were we were manipulated. So I mean, I what. I, I've always what's what's what what's the right thing to do in these situations in countries like yours in Venezuela yeah. where where this dictatorship has you know controlled society for for how about thirty years whatever it is and yeah. what 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 can you know what can we do I suppose what what would you do I suppose is sanctions do sanctions actually do anything in the end if they find other ways around them you know I mean is yeah. there is there anything? Is there anything other than like highlighting the issues often and as as regular as you can? I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, just tell a little story. There's an artist called Javier Telles who was invited to to participate in the Havana Biennale about ten years ago, and he refused because it was an official invitation by somebody who was linked to the to the regime, and he refused because Cuba is is Cuba and because they do this Havana Biennale to, to clean up their image and to invite artists from all over the world. He was like a, the, the, the old one out, like refusing, sending a public letter, not accepting the invitation. It was a big scandal at the time because, because most artists are, are against the regime, but they did participate to try and bring change from the inside. Last year, there was a lot of um, information going around about harassment to artists, to local Cuban artists, for just saying things, for just tweeting. Uh, there was one guy in prison for, for two months uh, with, with a family and kids. He was in prison for, for just saying something. That's uh, so you can put someone in prison for an opinion. So now the, the, the Havana Biennial is being boycotted heavily by every single person around the world, and that this has been led by two artists uh, from Cuba. One is Tania Bruguera, who, who had a show in, in the Tate, um, in the Turbine Hall last year, and Coco Fusco, who lives in the U.S., but Tania Bruguera still lives in, in Cuba, and it's been working really well. Uh, there's good organization, and there's lots of tweets every single day about people who are saying, no, we, we're boycotting the Havana Viena. And there's a letter from the organizers that don't go into politics too much and, and try to say that oh, no, but we need to do this to to you know uh, because it's always been done and because in the end they want a sense of normality. But I, I think that there is something happening and uh, people have to realize that that if you want something for your country, you have to want it for every single other country. It's not like a different rule for yours and for yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for South American one. So uh, I mean. Little by little, I think it will something will happen. Uh, but it's the same fight as, as uh, you know, uh, fake news and, and, and mm-hmm. what, what's real news anymore? What's manipulating? What is not? What's propaganda? What is not? 
So it's it's in the in the end is about education and 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 getting people to know things, but getting kids to want to know things. You know, because because some people are growing not interested, ignorant, right? Completely yeah, ignorant and unhappy about it. That that's the worst. Yeah, yeah so celebrate the ignorance. Yeah, us, right? I, yeah, I know. You see that all the time. It's yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah, because then what's what's the point of trying to to to, to suffering all your life trying to spread uh, some ideas if, if people just don't want or not interested? They don't care, and they are happy with their fake world and their fake. <laughs> it's it's scary though, isn't it? It is scary, isn't it? It's kind of dystopianly scary. Like it freaks me out a bit. Like that, what is coming? <laughs> it does Maybe feel like there's big change coming. It feels like where. I mean, obviously, everybody lives through history, but not everybody makes it into the history books. There are hundreds and possibly thousands of years where nothing really happened and that stuff all gets glossed over. But mm. the point mm. we're living through now, I'm absolutely certain in thousands of years will be written down and people will be reading about this time. And I think there's a there's a real weight on the shoulders of artists and, and anybody that has a voice right now to be inspired by what they see going on around them and yeah. to, to put that out there because i mean it all sounds really kind of woo-woo but that stuff can shape the way people think you know it only takes one person to convince another person about a view and that view could be bad or it could be good and i think as an artist you have like a responsibility almost to to be vocal right yeah, I think so. Although, if we were talking more about art and what's happening in the studio purely, I would also say that anything I do is political, and that just by by making what what you make uh, honestly, you're already standing in a political position of, of freedom and of. Uh, but it's, it's, of it's, course, it's very different. It's really interesting. So you said at the big. At the beginning, that your dad with his technograph drawing the straight lines, your mum with the material, with the curves and the colours, and how those those things must have really influenced you as a young child, just watching and, and observing that stuff. And then, mm-hmm. then as you've grown as an artist and, and you become an exile in a foreign country and you've you've watched your country deteriorate from the outside, like these lines and this this fractured sort of <laughs> state of you now begins to make sense to me. Like after yeah. speaking. Like your color, your your work in 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 lots that I've seen is quite colorful, right? It's quite it's quite you're using strong, bright colors. That's, I suppose that's almost a reaction to what you're feeling, is it? it, it like, is that how would you describe it? I, I'm, I'm 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 maybe I'm trying to say too much and read into what it is, but for me, that's kind of now after speaking to you. It's a symbolic level um, which I have used. Um, I forgot to give you a little book of the show I had in 2018 in New York, where you remember I showed you though that the paintings were going from a really big one that was Good three time. meter high to a small one that was two centimeters square, and they were to, to, to progressively getting smaller. That, that show was called the Dark Paintings, and they were all in a somber tones of uh, oxide and, and blacks, uh, all very monochrome or as monochrome as I could. Uh, could be, um, and they were all referring to, to the decline in, in, in my country in my lifetime, uh, and the um, what in that time was just starting. But the 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 amount of people that were fleeing the country by foot. There's about a million in that stay in Colombia, which is the next door country, but but there's six million in total that have left. So in the caravan that you see now going towards the U.S. from Central America, there will be a lot more Venezuelans every year. And it kind of, I'm, I'm assuming that would just almost bleed Venezuela dry, right? You know, the culture all just literally hops on a bus and, and leaves town. Yes, but I think, uh, it just I can tell you, you the example of collecting. Venezuelan collectors are really serious and they do it from the heart and they they want to help Venezuelan artists first. There is a healthy collecting tradition, maybe because there were a few families who who had 
all the power to actually do it, but they collect from from pre-Columbian times till now, and they, they have a coherent collection. They don't tend to move to, to collecting international artists or do it for the money. And that we could say that also with the artists, we, we want to preserve a history. Even if we are away, we want to tell the world our history and tell the world that, that, that there was a line and there was a development in, in, in the arts in Venezuela, and we want to continue that. Uh, you could call me traditionalist, but uh, you know, for people who don't know that story, it is it, 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 it doesn't make sense what I'm saying. But if you know the story, you will recognize that there are some some lines there. I yeah, I, a country that's been it, they try to rewrite history. What I'm doing is trying to 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 remind people that the history was there and it cannot be rewritten. Was there a reason you chose to... You said you showed that in New York, right? Yeah, well, because the gallery is a Venezuelan owner in New York. It's the one that represents me there. They they invited me to do a show, and that's what I was doing at the time, so yes. And yeah, there were lots of reasons. So next to that gallery, there was the Jewish Museum where where an artist called Ad Reinhardt had made the black paintings in 1966. And that had a kind of rhythm, that installation, because all the pictures you see are in black and white from those years, and this they were all the same size, all black. That to see them, you had to go really close. And obviously, the reproductions only show, bam, 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 black, 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 all same size. So I wanted the first thing I had in mind was this different sound in my installation. Right, right. I'll put that picture on. I'm just writing down the pictures that I need to send you, so you will show them. Um, so that was the first thing. And then I started the paintings and then I brought in some other ideas, but that's, it's nice sometimes to start the show by, by how it would look and then <laughs> fill up the gaps. And you've obviously done your homework there as well, because you knew what was happening in, in the building next to it. And like that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a synergy that maybe might be lost on people if they don't know mm. it right away like it's it's a deeper consideration than just like yeah this is the stuff i'm working on we're gonna put it up in this white box yeah i had the experience already of just showing paintings and calling them paintings and saying this is what i'm doing in the studio you know new work without any background story and i'm maybe making the mistake of having too complex too many ideas put into the show and i need to do myself the work of making them simpler for the gallery to actually be able to explain them uh, I'm in that process now for the February show. And we had meetings. We have, I'm always like super excited like I am now, telling lots of different stories. <laughs> but I do need to make it fit into a press release, all the ideas, so they can explain them. And then people will start enlarging them again. This is a beautiful quote from Walter Benjamin. He said, people read books and they take notes. And then from the notes, some people might write another book. But, you know, the notes need to happen and then we'll expand again into something else. So the, the, the main thing is the notes, not the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think it's, it's a true. really good, good place to stop, guys, isn't it, you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's move on to some shout-outs. Yeah, go on then. I'll go first because I'm feeling lucky. You're feeling lucky? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some music this week, guys, because um, I heard it when I was driving back from Dan's house. Um, and I think I think Cat Power is an Australian woman. Is she Dan? You might know this. Do you have you, ne- have you Cat Power? Yeah. No, never heard of him. Cat Her. Power. Cat no. Power. They're called. I'll, oh, I'll Google called, it right now. I think it's she. And the song is called Bad Religion. And it's it's a wonderful. I like it. It's a bit weird. It's a bit it's a bit warped. It's, a bit um, warped. What, what kind of music are we talking here, Paul? Is this uh, like quite a poppy thing or is this a bit more well, like indie? She's a, it's, a, it's a cover. It's a cover, but I don't know who the original artist is either who did Bad Religion, so I'm bad on me. Um, but it's really good. I like it. Yeah, it's 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 a bit... I don't know how you describe it, really. Good. I wasn't going to play any because I'll get in trouble by Yeah, you. I know. We'll get, we'll get PRA'd, mate. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely put a link in the show notes for people to check that out so you, you know what Paul's been listening to when he's been driving around. Yeah, there you go. Nice, nice. Uh, Hamy, do you want to go next, mate? Or or do you want me to jump in if you need a little bit of time? I have, uh, I, I asked my friend who was DJing in London 
when was that Saturday probably? He's called Trujillo. He lives in Berlin, he's Venezuelan. And he played this amazing set. One of the pieces that I, the only one that I went and asked him, what is this? Because he, he came with the, all these records with white covers, so people wouldn't know what they are. And he sent me this thing, it's Hamak from Haiti. Uh, the piece called Susie. You can find it because he sent me a YouTube link. And I just wanted to, you know, to remember the trip I did uh, for the um, Ghetto Biennale in um, in Haiti a couple of years ago. And this year is happening again. So all my my love to all the people I met there and all the artists that are working there, on the, literally on on nothing, um, with lots of heart. So it's, yeah, it's a really nice song. I hope you can play it. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll link that in the show notes as well. Do you find that music really links to a place and a time for you? Um, yes. Obviously, like you the hear one, a song and it one. immediately takes you back somewhere. Well, if you lived it, but if I try to translate that to you, that's why I'm not playing any in Venezuela. I could be playing, yeah, could be playing this Sentimiento Muerto for you, which will take me back to 1984. You listen to it and you will listen to, to, to the cure. Yeah. Mm. That's all the links you will make. And that, you know, it wouldn't mean at all what it means to me. It's, but it's so strange, isn't it? That that does that for yeah. us. I heard <laughs> one time, I can't even remember where I heard this or somebody way smarter than me said this probably a long time ago, but all art aspires to be music, you know, because it, it moves us in a way that's way more immediate and everybody yeah. understands. Like, obviously, we don't all like the same music, but there's a yeah. power behind it that just doesn't... Like, yeah. you can put it in a painting, I can put it in a photograph. It's just... I don't know, it's it's weird, isn't it? You can put everything in painting. But to me, painting is not at the top of the, the arts. I would have music and architecture mm. over painting, definitely. But I would have painting over sculpture, for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't like to be an architect, and I wouldn't like to be a musician. But I, I understand, I, I can feel it, that, yeah. that they, are, they are superior, yes. Hey, uh, Paul tells me that your wife is a sculptor. Yes, yes. Okay. I, I look forward to hopefully meeting her at some point and, and asking her how she feels about your hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, her father is a painter, so he's quite a, a wild Venezuelan painter called Jorge Pisani, so she will never dare to Paint. touch a brush and make a painting because, you know, she has these two big egos next to her, but she makes really nice things with what she does and then she's, you know, recently been acquired by the Tate uh, gallery in london so he's doing really that's, well that's very cool isn't it that's, but, yeah yeah good on her man that's really cool that's really <laughs> cool uh, my shout out this week funny we've got music all round. i don't think this has ever happened um so when paul came around the other day he discovered my synthesizers and he was playing around with synthesizers. he's never touched them it was like um I don't know. It's like a, a kid with a new toy. He was like, this is really bloody yeah. cool. He's like twiddling all the knobs. <laughs> so after that, after, after you left, Paul, I was like doing a bit of thinking about some stuff that I really like that's kind of quite wow, experimental, wow. synthesizer like I think people have called it like bleep bloop stuff. It's just like, it's just, it's just kind of like ambient, really relaxing, very um, experimental, interesting soundscapes. Uh, almost like a almost like a soundtrack to a movie, but without the movie. Um, so my shout out this week is um, an artist called Lightbath. One word, Lightbath. I think I first discovered Lightbath probably on YouTube. I, I think he's got um, a bunch of videos of just him jamming with synthesizers and they can mm. last quite a long time. Just like, it's like an art installation, but it just kind of happens once. You know, you can't mm. repeat this stuff. Mm. Um, and he's got, He's got quite a few records, so if you go on your, you know, Apple Music or your Spotify or whatever you subscribe to, you'll also find Light Bath there. So I'll link up to some stuff that I particularly like. But um, but yeah, after Paul left, I sort of sat and mm. dove into a, a bit of synthesizer music. Just oh, Heine, one last question. What's one one tiny thing, one tiny thing that brings you great joy? Now, I'll give you an example. Like, for me, it's when the wife puts the bins out. What's it for you? <laughs> The smell of coffee and bread, just mm. made. Oh, yeah. Daily, mm. yes. 
Yeah, that's really good. Dan, have you got any new ones? Have I got any new ones? Oh, <laughs> I wrote a list, didn't I? Give me two seconds. Choose a number between 1 and 26. 13. 13. Uh, ice cold water. Ice cold water, nice. Like, no. it, but it has to be like really, really cold. It, really so it, cold. The water was in the fridge and now it has ice in it too. And it's like, there's something really nice. It's just fresh, you know, ice cold water. Well, because it's something so simple and available, but you have to put the little lo- lo- condition. It. it has to be yeah, really yeah. cold. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be really, really cold. Like, no. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're a funny little animal, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you, isn't it like it's all these small things that he's they don't yeah when i say coffee and bread i mean good coffee and good yeah bread. yeah just just so it's you know <laughs> not just oh, my, oh my god you two could talk coffee all day he's, he's... <laughs> uh, hey mate i tell you like uh, only the finest coffee beans freshly roasted uh, yeah yes. i grind my beans at home it's a whole yes. thing come over you to my house but <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll sort you right out if you Is like cocktails, is that a euphemism? You grind your beans. <laughs> what are you going to do? Beans for Paul? Come on! <laughs> I don't know, mate. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> oh my god! Right, let me save this before we go completely off the rails. Hey, me. Where's the best place for people to get in touch with you on the internet if, if they want to follow along with what you're doing? Unfortunately, it's Instagram nowadays is is a good way because they. Well, I'm probably private at the moment, but I'm going to open as soon as this airs. So they can you're, you're at that. Hey Me Jilly, right? On, on Instagram? Yes, I'm on Twitter as well. And uh, on my website, I'm very proud of my website because it's an old-fashioned one that works and I know how to update it. So, I'm <laughs> so <laughs> really it's, it's, it's Jamie Gilly, right? Jamie Gilly. <laughs> Jamie, <laughs> Jamie Gilly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. Yeah, everyone... Go go and say hi to Amy. And um, you can follow us at Idle Hand Society on Instagram. As always, I'll put as many of the details. It was a bit of a wild roller coaster here, so hopefully I'll try and catch as much of this as possible. Tune back in again in a couple of weeks. We'll have another episode out for you. But in the meantime, take care.